David, thank you for a really laser-sharp focus on some of the fundamental problems and contradictions of Marx's engagement that with, with Shakespeare that remain challenges for us today. Um, we have a few minutes uh, for discussion. I want to uh, seize my uh, privilege as chair to ask a first question. Um, you were, of course, as all critics of Marx on Shakespeare, are <coughs> concerned to um, separate any methodology that we might term Marxian from the taint of anti-Semitism. In your critique, particularly of The Merchant of Venice, I was very struck, and, and indeed in, in your writing, in your, in your books too, with the distinction that you seem to make with um, one of the other, I think, most interesting critics of Marx's engagement with usury, Mark Schell, in uh, Language, Truth and Thought, where in his reading of The Merchant of Venice, because uh, the Bassanio-Antonio relationship is so clearly a sodomitic one, and Venice is saturated in a kind of Hellenistic, pederastic culture. In the end, the play seems to be confronting what Gore Vidal also took up in a very interesting essay, Pink Triangle and Yellow Star, which is that the, from Dante onwards, the Jews and the gays will end in the same circle of hell. They will arrive at the concentration camp together. And what Schell says in his reading of Marx and the Merchant of Venice in Language, Truth and Logic is that at the end, Shakespeare makes an equivalence between the sodomite and the usurer. And by legitimating sodomy, legitimates capitalism. Your critique, particularly of the sonnets, risks, I would suggest, a kind of normative heterosexual interpretation, particularly as you remind us that at the end the dark lady possesses the boy, that might flirt with uh, a hint of homophobia, but also reminds us why the whole question of gay marriage remains at the centre of contemporary capitalism. I was reminded of the way in which Marx himself is extraordinarily sexually puritanical. In the quotation, for example, of Timon in Capital, he bowdlerizes all the sexual references to venereal disease, as on, whereas in the Paris manuscripts, they're there. Uh, so my question has to do with the extent to which you are yourselves, in some sense, uh, complicit with Marx's own uh, sexual attitudes. Mm. I, uh... <laughs> I don't think I'm complicit with them at all. I mean, not personally speaking. What I'm really interested in is uh, the conceptual relationship between these twin violations of Aristotelian teleology, which is central, I think, to the Western, to Western culture's construction of usury. It's constantly referred to as a sodomy in nature, a kind of sodomy. Um, as I mentioned, it all goes all the way back to the patriarchs, and it's in Dante's Inferno, and so on. So I think we need to understand that connection um, insofar as it has any purchase on sodomy in the sense of concupiscent sexuality as practiced today. I mean, I'm all in favor of concupiscent sexuality. <laughs> I think it's great. So I think that there should be more of it. So um, if that answers your question, in other words, I suppose what I'm trying to say 
is that I think we need to separate an intellectual grasp of the historical connections, which are surely obvious and undeniable, between usury, sodomy, and Judaism. We need to find ways of separating those connections from personal prejudice and biases and discrimination in the postmodern environment, which is clearly and undeniably inappropriate. Um, but I think there's no point in denying that those connections exist because it's basically undeniable. They're all over in the place. Does that answer your question or not? Well, you are um, reviving, particularly in your recent work, the concept of Satan. I am. Yes, that's true. I am reviving Satan. <laughs> Christians <laughs> guilty. Thank you, John. Um, I want to add two figures to this. So the year is 1844. The town is Paris. Um, the paper is on the Jewish question. The first paper when Marx finally becomes a communist. In his desk is Moses Hess's paper on money. And that paper is filled with what I call the historical anti-Semitic narrative, in which we say we're going to be opposed to money, to capitalism, usually in the same way that we're opposed to this other bad guy, which is Jews. Okay? And Hess is going on and on about the peace and all this, right? And it was in his desk because it was supposed to go into the Deutsche Französische Jahrbuch, which only came out one issue, right? But it was filled with Engels and Marx and okay. And the other person who's sitting across from him in the apartment in Paris in Saint Germain is Heinrich Heine, who is looking over his writing and uh, Marx is looking at his poetry. And Heine, of course, is very conflicted about Judaism. Ultimately, uses the anti-Semitic narrative and then fights against it. So Marx is in the middle of the, I mean, and all three characters that we're talking about are Jewish, right? And Marx is in the middle of this, partly self-hating, partly using the historical anti-Semitic narrative, and not coming clear of it. I mean, I accuse Marx in my work of using that narrative and of pushing it, not necessarily that he himself is anti-Semitic, but he used it. Did he use it? Tropologically, or did he use it literally? That's the question for me. Because when I read on the Jewish question, I think that Judaism and the Jews, when he talks about making the Jew impossible and so on, yeah. I think he's using Jew as a trope for capitalist, of for capital, right? Yeah. Not referring literally to empirical people, right. Jews, right? But, but in the end, when the Nazi says, we're going to burn him because... <laughs> well, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a regrettable contribution yeah. to the history of European anti-Semitism. I think Moses Hess is a particularly fascinating figure. Because, yeah. of course, he eventually his communism mutates into Zionism. Right? Yeah. Moses Hess is a particularly fascinating figure because his communism eventually mutates into Zionism. And in a sense, Walter Benjamin undergoes a similar kind of journey one of the things I'm really interested in is the causal philosophical links that allow them co to connect uh, anti-capitalism eventually with Zionism. But yeah. I haven't, uh, I mean, you know more about this than I do. Something that you also Yes, about, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. David Sharple. Uh, <coughs> thank you, David, for a really, really informative and fascinating paper. But the, the, the thing that struck me is that after 30 years, not only of post-structuralism, but also particular strand of analytical philosophy following Wittgenstein, uh, it seems to me that the foundational argument from Aristotle all the way through Shakespeare to Marx is a radical distinction between what is natural and what is unnatural or perverse. And I wonder that after the last 30 years, we can actually go along with 
Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. Of course, since Saussure, basically, and especially with Derrida and J.R. Austin and so on, um, all these people have been talking about the performative sign for, as you say, at least 30 years. Um, I suppose I would argue that the rise of what could we call it post-structuralist philosophy is part of the same process as the rise of usury. Both of them attribute efficacious power to signs. Linguistic in the one case, financial in the other case. Now, does that mean that we have to apply the same ethical critique to post-structuralism as we do to usury? That's a question to which I do not know the answer. Um, I'm rather inclined to say no, but I can see the contradiction there because I do want to point to parallels, if not to argue that the rise of post-structuralism and the rise of usury are in some sense part of a greater whole, a greater overarching process. But it's clear that uh, post-structuralist philosophy has an extremely liberating effect. That's visible. You know, you only have to talk to people to find out that they find it extremely personally liberating to be free from essentialist preconceptions and so on. That's undeniably true. I suppose dialectic is never simple, right? The dialectic is always contradictory and perhaps that's what you've just put your finger on is an ideological contradiction. Actually, a more dialectical reading of of Shakespeare's Shylock than Marx himself delivers too, because mm -hmm. uh, somebody used a phrase of much of yourself, David, um, that Marx sees Shylock as a paradigm of, of, of usually mm -hmm. interest-bearing um, capital. But of course, Shakespeare also builds in through Marx, uses Shylock, doesn't he? Somebody used a phrase, an extreme parody of, uh, of capital it, itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a critique of it from a radical egalitarian humanist standpoint. Mm -hmm. Have other Jew eyes, hands, organs, dimensions, senses. I mean, that's the, yeah. one of the great speeches in the history of our Western culture in, in defense of the fundamental rights of human beings, mm -hmm. simply by virtue of the fact that we share the same flesh, the same mortality, and the same rights to revenge. Absolutely. And, and of course, the, I think even, in some ways, even more remarkable speech in the trial scene, you have among you many a purchased slave, like your asses and your dogs and mules, you use in abject and enslaved parts because you bought them. Exactly. I mean, he's holding up a mirror to the villainy you teach me, I've executed. So built into that play is a critique of that. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And if I'd had time, I would have said more about that yeah. today. Yes, you're absolutely right. Two things. First of all, Sherlock does point out that Christian society is built on slavery, also a form of objectification. Yes. The first point. You're right, of course, this is a great humanist moment when Shylock asserts his equality with the Christians, mm -hmm. but I think there's also a kind of darker ideological element lurking in the background there, which is that perhaps to the play's initial audience anyway, that would have been seen as a false equality, mm -hmm. that Shylock would have been saying something that isn't true when he mm -hmm. says, I'm just like you, mm -hmm. because as a Jew, he is essentially different, mm -hmm. and that perhaps he is doing the same thing as money does which is to make things that are essentially different commensurable. Money is a common denominator which imposes a false equality on things that are naturally distinct. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of what's going on in Shylock's 
assertion of equality right. with the Christians. I don't think it's all that's going no. on. I think the humanistic reading is also available. No. I think the speech is ambivalent. Are you implying that egalitarianism itself is a, is a function or expression of this? Yes, I am. And that's why I think that democracy goes along with capitalism, right? Democracy, the idea that everyone is equal, has equal rights and so on. Again, from, the, from a feudal perspective, that's a false equality. That's saying something that simply isn't true because a nobleman is essentially different mm -hmm. from a peasant. Mm -hmm. But in a capitalist society, we, yeah. we're equal, right? From a feudal perspective, that's false. From a capital perspective, it's true. Uh -huh. That is the, the whole structure of Shakespeare's play, but I think mean, I think the plays generally actually is, is in the contradiction, the tension between uh, the actual reality of a divided, class divided, hierarchical, exploitative, hierarchical society and the imaginative prospect of equality, which isn't an actually existing state, but it's potentially articulated in the play. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, so absolutely. Otherwise, I mean, if, if, you follow it, if you follow your dark argument all the way through, you have nowhere to turn. I agree. I mean, I think you can never get anywhere saying that Shakespeare is either pro-capitalist or, yeah. or anti-capitalist. As Keats says, he has negative capability. He's capable of holding two contradictions <coughs> in place at the same time. I think that's nowhere more true than it in his attitude to capital. Yeah. I should explain that one of our speakers, Martin McQuillan, has late last night withdrawn, so we have plenty of time. So I'm not concerned about running over. Are you great? Uh, yeah, David, great paper. I really enjoyed it. But to follow up on this question about sort of the, uh, the real and the non-real, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the medieval sort of thought, and you're sort of raising the question, how do we apply that to our world today, which is a great question. I thought the, the moment in your paper when you said, no, this won't work, was uh, the bit about the gold standard, where you said, of course, uh, now we realize that the value of money is not determined by gold. Right? And, and that struck me as the moment of sort of deconstructing this, this binary. Uh, and I'm wondering if it's possible to apply that elsewhere. That is to, to say, well, the real turns out not to be as real as we thought. Or, or, yeah, um, this is a little vague, obviously. And I'm thinking, as, as I would email a couple of people, that Frederick Jameson's work on derivatives and postmodernism is, is relevant here, too. But he doesn't really go there, either. Well, I think that the postmodern condition is when what is obviously not real becomes real. That's hyper-reality, as Baudrillard calls it, right? Signs are taken for reality. Signs appear to be real, even though logically they're demonstrably unreal. And the most prominent such sign is money, of course, which has real power, does real things. It's really efficacious although it has no material existence whatsoever. It's purely a symbol. Now you can extend that to the power of other symbols. Partly, the power of symbols today is technological. There are simply more symbols, visual symbols, electronic symbols around us than there ever were before. You can also extend it to the linguistic philosophy that David Shalquick mentioned, the rise of post-structuralism and so on, which also bestows determining power on symbols. On the other hand, you know, ontologically, symbols are not real, but empirically, they are real. And I guess that's what hyperreality is all about. I suppose what I'm trying to do in my work as a whole is suggest an ethical critique of hyperreality. That seems to be what we need more than anything else.
second point first. Yes, of course, the difference between the labour of a small craftsman and the labour of a proletarian is that what the craftsman is selling is the thing that he makes. What the proletarian sells is his time. Now, of course, for a human being, time and life are coterminous. So, proletarian, the life of a proletarian is the life of piecemeal slavery. We all sell each other bit by bit. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the ancient philosophers, you find a very particular psychology of slavery defined, which is essentially materialistic. Right? Slaves are pure bodies. They're often referred to as bodies. They're the only people who are legally susceptible to corporal punishment very often. Um, they're basically regarded as having no souls. That's what a slave is. If it's true that a proletarian is a piecemeal slave, then I think perhaps we have an explanation for the ideological death of the soul in our own time, um, and the rise of materialism in our own time as well. Um, so I think that the equation of time and money, of which usury, as you say, is in a sense the ultimate or paradigmatic form, I think that's a really important process that Shakespeare and his contemporaries are looking at all the time, yes. Mm. To go back to the first point about... Really so, I just comment just briefly that isn't that surely what we should be worried about most today, is that real wages have fallen sharply in the last 30 years have been replaced by credit. Yeah. And that's, presumably that is because there's no other way for most people to have enough buying power to mm. keep the whole crazy engine going. Yep. It's, I would use the term usury, not credit. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah it's, uh, people are becoming enslaved mm. to the banks, basically. I mean, you just have to look at student loans, which mm. apparently can never be forgiven by bankruptcy or ever by anything. Mm. So people are just going to be enslaved for their whole lives, basically. Mm. So I think that's why... Uh, but, but it's, it's why we can't measure real wealth um, of most people mm. by possessions. Yeah. Because, in fact, they're not possessions in the old-fashioned sense. Exactly. Cars these days are largely not owned by the people driving them. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, even the richest people in the world, I'm sure, are in the red, mm -hmm. technically speaking, yeah. and therefore not rich at all, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, credit, which is even more abstract than money, mm -hmm. um, rules the world, even though it doesn't exist. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> to go back to your first point about um, treating things as people, actually I said treating things as if they were alive. I was right. careful with that, but you're right. No, this right. Is that's, it, that's even better for my, my Yes, point, it actually. does. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, your objection still holds in. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. My, um, Shakespeare uses that kind of imagery all the time. He really personifies everything. Mm. Um, I think the, the device of personification is often used 
as a means of describing the objectification of the subject, how a person can turn into a thing. Mm -hmm. I've written about John Bunyan in this context and his figure of Mr. Badman, mm -hmm. who is actually an archetypal participant in the market. He's Hobbes's homo economicus, mm -hmm. but because of the habit of personification that Bunyan has got into, calls him Mr. Badman and so on. Um, maybe that's another question. You're right that uh, in Shakespeare, personification is often ethic, ethically neutral. However, I would suggest that idolatry and magic, which I mentioned in my talk, are both instances of the illegitimate and unethical attribution of agency to things. And when you pray to an icon, you idolize it when you think it can do something for you, when you think that it can help you. And so you're praying, your mistake is that you're praying to the sign rather than to the referent. Protestant iconoclasts argue that this is a constant temptation to which all people are susceptible. If they're confronted with a sign, they will tend to worship or focus on the sign itself and forget about the referent. Um, with regard to magic, I think in essence, magic is the attempt to manipulate the objective world through symbols, incantations, icons, images, diagrams, so on. The use of, again, performative representation, which is quite suddenly in early modern Europe recognised as immoral. Right? It wasn't, I mean, witchcraft was always kind of immoral, but there is this witch hunt, this witch craze, which takes off, I think, not coincidentally, along with the dawn of capitalism, where the idea of images that can do things, the idea of attributing life to objects, suddenly comes to seem ethically reprehensible, perhaps because of the sudden power which things seem to be acquiring. Thank you. Two okay. um, Thank you very much. I have a couple of comments and questions. One, one particularly to, to do with the, the nature of money, which I think the operative word is here, uh, because I think the, um, a lot of the, the, the question about that uh, circles around the dual aspect of money of being having an idealistic form, an abstract form, and a material, materialistic form. The problem that we get nowadays with uh, banking and, and, and crises tend to go when it's, uh, this connection is, is cut to materialism, where it becomes uh, you know, stock bubbles or markets, where there is no connection anymore to any kind of materialism. Uh, and, and the second, when it's uh, purely material, you get the, the, the commentary of the natural commentary that, that Richard commented on, where it's made, made akin to an, uh, an animal, uh, where it's, it's not really like that. And I was wondering, isn't the nature of money is that it has this sort of paradoxical and weird kind of relation where it is both ideological, or uh, ideological post, but idealistic, abstract, as well as material. And the second bit, which to, to do with um, uh, the question about, or, or comment on um, money and language, uh, and, and you know, going away from the gold standard, you, you have that sort of debate in, in during Shakespeare's time uh, uh, and afterwards, particularly um, thinking of the 1620s between uh, uh, Edward Mallard's, uh, and, and Edward Misselden. Uh, and where you get uh, first time properly the idea of exchange value coming up only as, as exchange, not tied into the debased coinage. And then this is what I've been wanting to ask you for a while. Doesn't Bacon, in his Idols of the Marketplace, touch exactly on this? Because the Idols of the Marketplace is not money, it's 
Language, words, words akin yeah, to manner. Absolutely. Oh, it's totally. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's why I called my book "Idols of the Market." Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, bacon for the bacon. The idols of the marketplace are, I think, I would argue, certainly words, but also by implication, money or any kind of sign. Yes, absolutely. Now, to go back to the first question, I understand how money is an idea. I don't understand how money is material. Obviously, coins and banknotes are, they have a material identity, but those are signs of financial value, not it, the things themselves. Material in that it has a reference. It needs to be tied into something, mm. to some extent. But what is the reference of a banknote? Well, this is, this is the problem, uh, because it used to be tied into the gold standard, yeah. but now, particularly the housing crisis, which got where you have uh, hyperinflation, is because that is being cut. Exactly right, yeah. That, exactly. And that's, that's, if it's just idealistic, then you have problems. That's my point. Yeah. That's exactly my point. Yeah. I think that money has ceased to be referential and it's become a performative sign, as J.L. Austin describes it, exactly that same nature. Yes. George Evans. <coughs> Thank you very much uh, for, for that uh, echo. Uh, I just thought, would you make anything of the Roman dimension of the Merchant of Venice? It seems to be another context, uh, apart from the Jewish, in terms of which you can kind of... Uh, interrogate the whole idea of money. You know, the Roman dimension, bearing in mind that um, the most potent symbol of the objectification of the personal is the bond of flesh, and that comes from the Roman world. And Antonio himself is described as an antique Roman uh, by the sun. So I just wondered whether you'd make anything of that. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's not something that I'd thought of before, but now that you mention it, yes. Now, I suppose one question is, does Shakespeare mean Roman or does he mean Catholic? Because if we think about the disputes between Catholics and Protestants in this time, then I think all sorts of very interesting questions of ethical semiotics arise. Mm. For example, the most obvious one perhaps would be the dispute over the Eucharist. Obviously, the Catholic position is that there is a literal transubstantiation. So the mm. sign literally turns into its referent. Mm. Um, Luther comes along and says, well, it's true. He says there is a literal embodiment. Of course, Luther believes in the real presence. Luther objects to the idea that the priest has effected the transubstantiation. That's the problem for Luther. It seems to be the fetishization of labor that's the problem for Luther. He says, you're making an idol of what the priest does. Mm. Now, Calvin comes along and gives it another refining, when Calvin says, no, it's not true that the, there's a literal transubstantiation, the bread and the wine are only symbols, but nevertheless they are efficacious. They actually do have an objective effect in the psyche of the communicant, even though they're only symbols. So it seems to me that that's the moment in theology when the power of the efficacious sign is acknowledged. And I think that Shakespeare, like most of his contemporaries, is always conscious of the relationship between theological signs such as the Eucharist, linguistic signs, and financial signs as well. So I think that in the sense of Catholicism, Shakespeare is always commenting on Roman matters, and of mm. course this raises the very interesting biographical question of his crypto-Catholicism, yeah, yeah, if that's yeah. what it is. But maybe you're talking about something different. Well, well I, I in turn have not thought of that. <laughs> 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 interesting. The Legend of Venice is an amazing place. Yes. It has so many such a rich kind of, but, but I, I think there really is a kind of um, uh, an antique Roman. By antique Roman, I'm thinking means something like um, something out of early living. Republic. I see. 
And the bond of flesh is definitely, mm -hmm. there's Aulus Gellius, there's um, Jordan, the orator. I mean, it, it is rooted in very early Roman history. Okay. This particular moment when, um, when poor Roman soldiers, in order to go off and fight Roman's wars, would have to borrow money to keep their families afloat. They default on that debt, and then uh, that, that's when this, this extraordinary kind of penalty was invented. <coughs> they would have to sacrifice a pound of their flesh or be sold across the Tiber into slavery. Okay, so I didn't is, know that. That is, that is actually part of the 12 mm. tables. That's fascinating. Yeah. I hadn't known that. I must look into that further. Yeah. Thank you. Really interesting. The religious discourse that you're reviving in the critique of capitalism in your own work um, seems unfamiliar to us, or there's a defamiliarization about it. But I'm very struck that in, uh, and this is possibly one of the reasons why a critic like Derrida is so, or Baudrillard is so preoccupied by spectrality, in French political discourse, the association between user and capitalism through a Catholic lens has never gone away and influenced socialists like Mitterrand, who in many ways you know, spoke like an old, like Charles Maurras. So the, the, the French example, I think, shows us, doesn't it, the dangers of a, a fraternization mm. uh, by the left with this um, discourse of the Action Francaise, actually, yeah. in France. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I don't know much about the connection between Morass and... Well, when you start speaking of Satan, uh, you're playing with fire. Literally. <laughs> yeah, literally. I know, and I think I'm playing with fire in all sorts of ways, some of which you've obviously noted. And, I mean, I think that the, the collapse, probably not too strong a word, of the class system with which Marx was working... I think it is bringing about a convergence of what used to be called the left with what used to be called the right. After all, left and right wing is a metaphor that only really arises 200 years ago with the French Revolution. It's not universal and it really does seem to be growing obsolete today. That convergence will bring some opportunities, but it will bring probably many more dangers. And I think that we really need to be conscious of those dangers. And that's why I tried to make the... Uh, the need to expel anti-Semitism from any modern critique of usury, the centre of my paper. I think I must look in more to the connection between Maurras and Mitterrand and the French tradition, but I think but, it, but at the moment, it's not coincidental that the radical orthodoxy around a thinker like John Milbank mm. cites G.K. Chesterton so much. Right. Chesterton has never been more fashioned. I know. In and Chesterton has many interesting things to say about usury, you know. He has many anti-Semitic things to say as well. I know, well. I know. Um, <laughs> which yeah. someone like Milbank really doesn't deal with. Right. There's no point in ignoring this, though. You know, we have to kind of take it on board and mm. understand it in order to oppose it, it seems to yeah. me. One last comment from Kieran and then David. Just to have a no, ethical critique that you're developing, what's it grounded in? What positive norms and values? You know, because then you replied to me, I think, in a way I found really provocative and interesting, I'm putting food for thought. Mm. And you said that, well, even those positive humanist, egalitarian humanist norms in Shire are themselves produced by capital. Um, and you can dialectically see that as, of course, capitalism producing its own gradient, the ideology should eventually undermine it. But I mean, if you collapse that egalitarian, utopian egalitarian and humanist ideal back into the negative cap capitalist plight mm. that we're still suffering from. Where's your ethical critique of it yeah. come from?
You mean what's the what's the alternative? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Where are you judging it negatively? Where, where, where are you finding the anti-Semitism you've just been talking about? Where are you finding that problematic? Yeah. Why, is, why isn't the way things are under late capitalism okay for you? Yeah. <laughs> First of all, it's definitely not okay. But as to why... Yeah. Well, why is it bothering you? Why yeah, is it I a know. bad thing? I know, I know. It's I know. Just it's just thing. What's the alternative as well is a really important Dr. question. Yeah, I mean... First of all, I think what I'm doing is critique. I think that's the right word, um, which is, in a sense, negative by definition. I'd also note that attempts to provide a utopian alternative to capitalism have inevitably ended in hideous disaster, right? I mean, almost without exception. So I'm not even sure that a positive alternative or a positive ethical ground for critique mm -hmm. is available. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, it seems to me, mean that it isn't necessary and good to carry on the critique. Mm -hmm. I think it's possible to do a purely negative critique and negative dialectics, to mm -hmm. quote Adorno. And I think that's probably what I'm doing. I certainly don't have any alternative. You wouldn't appeal to universal human rights? Or? No. <laughs> no. We don't have the universal human rights, but we do have the old mole. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. um, let's uh, break for coffee now. Um, Half an hour late, running half an hour late. So I will notify the pub accordingly. May I raise a practical question, seriously, because at the next session we've got two speakers I've got to chair, and that would leave only... Everything will be running 30 minutes late, so the same time, so but 30 to, minutes later. So, I see, so we're going to for luncheon at one thirty. yeah. And okay. shorter afternoon because of the short... No, I understand program. that, yeah. Okay. Coffees and biscuits are in the pavilion at the end of the garden. <laughs>